0: My name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here this morning. Uh, The scripture reading for today is out of 2 Samuel, uh, all of chapter 24. Let's read. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of the Lord, the, the king, still see it. But why does, the, why does my lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, and began from Aror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad, and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead, and to Kadesh, in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died, of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Then David said to the Lord, when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor from Er Arunah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord, come, the king, come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood all this o king aruna gives to the king and aruna said to the king may the lord your god accept you but the king said to aruna no i no but i will buy it from you for a price I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and uh, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was adverted from Israel. That was the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, coming before you in prayer is a wonderful privilege. Privilege we have and we don't want to use it lightly. Thank you that you are accessible and desire our communication with you. May we only ever come to you in humility and never in the mindset that you owe us or that that we deserve something because, in fact... We all have fallen short of your standard, and we ultimately deserve death. But we have hope, and we don't have to be scared of death. It is because of you calling us by name and doing what you did on the cross that we can have confidence and security in your hope. We are only here and able to do what we do because of you. Thank you, Father. Help us to not forget that being called to you and by you, it's a holy place to be. Don't let us become proud and forget what you have done for us. As we gather here today together, and even when we are alone, cause your word that is spoken to us to strengthen and embolden and encourage us. Help us to remember it and to use it. Use it as a sword when we we need to stand up for what is right. And help us to use it as armor when we need to guard against temptations that come our way. Thank you, Father, for your provision and your protection. Help us to see past ourselves and look to the needs of others. Even here at North Shore, we have those that are hurting and struggling with, with life. I know I do and have. We need your grace and your mercy. I pray now for those that are in this slump, feeling like they're just barely making it. I pray that you, you would pull them out of their mess and replace whatever it is that's causing their disconnect with you and help them, help us all, put you where you deserve. That is in front of everything. And we know that unconfessed sin is usually what's holding us back. Thank you, Father, that your desire is that we, we would confess sin and not allow it to have a hold on us. Please help us all to be quick to confess and to, and to receive your grace and mercy quickly. You are our rock and our redeemer, and you deserve our worship and our praise. You will and shall receive all of the glory. Praise be to your mighty name, Jesus. Amen
1: morning. As you might have guessed, we conclude our series of messages from 1st and 2nd Samuel. As we've been looking all of this time, I think 40 weeks or something like that, at the life and reign of King David. This particular chapter, chapter 24, is kind of a bookend to 21. You remember we said that Chapters 21 to 24, these five chapters, are a unit. Each particular story is not necessarily connected to what we saw before. They're they're written as an epilogue to give a conclusion. This is what David is like. This is what the kingdom of God was like under David. And so each one of those stories describes another piece of who David was and what the kingdom was like under his rule. But chapter 21 and chapter 24 are bookends in some ways because they're very similar in their themes. In this particular chapter we see David at some of his best and some of his not so best. This chapter, like 21, deals with God judging Israel. In chapter 21 we see David rescue Israel from God's judgment in the form of a famine that he had placed on Israel. That famine, you may recall, was placed there because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites, and David was called to resolve that injustice and therefore spared many of the Israelites some of God's judgment. In this final chapter, we come to yet another story where Israel is under the judgment of God. This time, there is this pestilence, which is like a plague, sickness, and death on his people. The main difference between chapter 21 and chapter 24 is in this chapter, David is cleaning up and repenting of his own sin, not the sins of the previous king. The story divides into three sections. Verses 1 to 9, David's sin Verses 10 to 18, God's judgment on sin. And in the last seven verses, we have God's redemption of Israel. Let's first look at David's sin. And as we begin this section in verse 1, we are hit smack in the face with a very significant theological issue. Verse 1, if you read it carefully, can startle you. Because he says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, the Lord, incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. That's a shocking verse. What it says is very clear. It's not shocking because it's hard to understand. It's shocking because we do understand it. What he's saying through this verse is God is angry with Israel for some reason and he never says why. Probably some sort of national sin like idolatry or unbelief. That's the kind of thing that had in the past kindled God's anger against Israel. That God is angry at Israel is not a huge revelation to us, even though God expresses his patience and his mercy far more than he shows his anger in the Old Testament. Judgment is his strange work, Isaiah tells us. God, we know, did at times respond in anger against his people after they had for years refused to repent of their sin, their ongoing rebellion against him. So there's nothing puzzling about God's righteous anger to a wayward group of his people. What can be troubling to some people is how God responds or how God expresses his anger. That can be really troubling to some people. The author says God expressed his anger at his people by inciting David against his people. And he told him, go number Israel and Judah. So, God, in his anger, intends to judge the Jews and punish them for this undisclosed sin, whatever it is. And he does that, we know, from sending a plague on them. What complicates it is God doesn't simply send them a prophet and say, because you've sinned thus and so without repenting, I'll be sending a plague on you. Instead, he inserts an extra step in his judgment of Israel, and this extra step can give people a headache. It's been the cause of some serious theological debate, even though the author is very clear in what he's saying here. This extra step that God inserts in his judgment of Israel is this. He incites David to do something that God hates. And in response to David's sin, he will bring down his judgment on Israel. That's what it says. There really isn't any question about what it says. But it obviously raises some hard questions. One of the ways that some scholars have sought to escape the hard questions that this particular verse raises is by giving more weight to the way First Chronicles treats this same issue. Because the chronicler records this same exact issue but he records it a little bit differently. Speaking of the same event, the author of Chronicles says in chapter 21, verse 1, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Here, the one who incites David to do this thing God hates so that God will bring judgment on Israel is not God, but Satan. So some people try to extricate God from this alleged dilemma by saying, ha-ha, see, it was really Satan who incited David to sin against God by taking a census. But that doesn't solve the problem because it doesn't change the fact that the author of 2 Samuel says God incites David against Israel. In fact, this alternate version of the story in First Chronicles simply raises another problem. And that is, why does the author of 1 Samuel say that God incites David to sin, while the chronicler says it's Satan who incites David to sin? Aren't you glad you came this morning? (laughs) This is why it's so good to preach through the Bible, because you'd you'd never touch this verse if you weren't in a series. You'd never go here. It's too hard. So here the one who incites David to do this thing God hates so that God could judge Israel is Satan in Chronicles. But it's a big difference, isn't it, between Satan and God? Well the best explanation to that problem is to harmonize the two accounts, which is easily done. That is, these two accounts are not contradictory to each other. They simply describe the exact same event but from two different perspectives. The author of 2 Samuel, in he's describing this event, cites God as inciting David. That's what he does. God is the primary cause. The chronicler, however, chooses to name the secondary cause Satan. Now, what this primary and secondary language means is this. It was Satan who actually visited David and acted upon him to incite him to take a census and bring God's judgment on Israel. But the author of 2 Samuel reveals that it was God who gave Satan his orders to incite David. They're both true, they're just different perspectives of the same event. This is very much like what happened in the book of Job, where God and Satan are both involved in what happens to Job. In Job's story, Satan is the one who actually perpetrates this horrible abuse on Job, but behind Satan is God, who incites this incident by permitting Satan to test Job through suffering. This is like what's going on here in chapter 24. God is the primary cause. It's ultimately his idea to judge Israel by inciting David to sin. That is what the author of 2 Samuel records. But he incites David by means of Satan, who successfully tempts David and Satan's role in what the chronicler records. That's a very common explanation for how Satan and God can, in two different accounts, be connected to the same act. But that doesn't answer the bigger question, which some of you are going, wait a minute. (laughs) And that is this question. Why is God inciting? whether directly or indirectly through Satan? Why is he inciting David to sin so that he can bring judgment on his people Israel in the first place? That's the $64,000 question. And in order to address that question, we first have to say, as we'll see, this theological question, that same question, could be asked of many texts in the Bible, not just this one. In fact, the question in some way surfaces every time the Bible makes a point of emphasizing two specific truths in the same story. It's in all of those stories where both of those truths are emphasized in the same story. The first truth is this world is riddled, chocked full of sin. The second is God is totally, absolutely sovereign or in control in his governance over this world. Any biblical story, any biblical text that gives emphasis to both of those two truths, that's going to cause us with this question of how God relates to sin and evil. That question is, how does God, who is totally sovereign in his governance over this world, relate to the sin and evil in it? Okay? And the answer the Bible gives is consistent on this point. But for many believers, this is troubling because the truth is, and we're going to break this down and help us see why the scripture teaches this in a moment, the truth is, although God does not sin himself and doesn't know how to sin, in his sovereign governance over the world filled with sin, he relates far more closely to sin and evil than many find comfortable John Piper puts it this way in his new book on Providence, God can see to it that sin happens without himself sinning. God can see to it that sin happens without himself sinning. Now let's spend a few minutes demonstrating that from the scriptures, because I don't expect you to believe me unless I tell you from the scriptures. First, let's establish the truth that all of us believe, and that is God cannot and does not ever sin. Because nobody seriously questions this. We're just going to cite one verse to prove this. Speaking about God, we read in Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his word is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. God does not sin. He cannot sin ever. Second, let's establish That the Bible teaches that in his governance over this world, God is completely in control or completely sovereign over all things, including evil. So let's take a look at some verses that teach that. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. The Lord has made even the wicked for the day of trouble trouble. So it is God who makes the wicked for the day of trouble. That's what that verse says. It doesn't say that he permits wickedness and wicked people, though he obviously does do that sometimes. It says he made everything, including the wicked. In Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I, the Lord, I am the Lord who does these things. God Creates calamity. And that word create is the same word used in Genesis 1 for God creating the heavens and the earth. That's his creative activity, and he creates calamity. So he's the creator of calamity. He doesn't just permit it to happen. The word translated calamity is a Hebrew word that is almost always translated evil in the Old Testament. God himself does not do evil, but in his governance over this world, he sees that it happens. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. I could give you a lot of these. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? People in the ancient Near East had a primitive early warning system for imminent danger like maybe an attack from the enemy village next to you. When the attack was imminent, somebody who had been appointed to keep watch blows a trumpet to signal to those in the city to take up arms or to in some way prepare for some serious trouble. The author is saying this, just as assuredly as the sound of this warning trumpet makes people afraid, it is equally certain that whenever disaster comes to a city God in his governance over that city he's the one who does it. Again the word translated disaster is most often translated in the Old Testament as evil. It's the same word in Genesis 2-9 where he says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Same word as disaster. So we've seen that God's close relationship with evil, we've seen that earlier in 1 Samuel in the life of King Saul. You may remember 16 verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, "Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you." The word "harmful," again, is the same word for evil in Genesis 2:9. In the Hebrew, God actively sends on Saul what most translations call an evil spirit, to torment Saul, because that's what the that word means. It means evil. Let me give you one final and dramatic example of God's relationship to evil in his governance over the world. And it comes from 1 Kings chapter 22. In the setting, God wants evil King Ahab. You remember Ahab was a terrible king. He was married to Jezebel. And God is done with Ahab. He's going to judge him. And so he wants the evil King Ahab to go up to battle against Syria at a place called Ramoth-Gilead so he could judge Ahab by using the Syrian army to kill him. That's God's plan. That's his desire. Then the inspired author in 1 Kings 22 reveals a prophecy from the prophet Micaiah. And that prophecy is wonderful because it takes us into the very divine counsel of God in the heavenlies and his angelic host. Listen. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets and God, he said him, he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And Micaiah concludes this telling by telling Ahab, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So when Micaiah goes out and said, Should I go to battle against Ahab? The prophets all said, Yeah. That's a great idea, and you're gonna be victorious, because they lied. And Ahab, if you know the story, was killed in battle against Syria. This is a very difficult story, but it is a great illustration of the point we're trying to make. There's nothing hard to interpret in this text. It's very straightforward. The Lord and his sovereign governance of this world determines to judge evil King Ahab. He does that by sending a lying spirit to entice Ahab to go to battle and be killed there. God's judgment on Ahab will be accomplished through that. Again, God can see to it that sin happens without himself sinning. That's a crucial distinction. The purpose of these examples is not to shock or bring anybody into doubt about God's holiness or his holy character. It's simply to demonstrate how God, in his sovereign governance over this world, relates to evil. Because if God stood back from evil and said, Oh, I can't touch that, I can't have anything to do with that, he would not be sovereign in a world filled with evil. He would not be in control. When we see several scriptures revealing the same truth about God, which we've just seen, but that truth doesn't fit our conception of God, we mustn't try to twist the truth in order to conform it to our conception of God. No, we have to, by faith, conform our conception of God to what the Bible reveals about him. We must never try to protect God from anything the Bible clearly says about him. That dishonors him because the Bible is God's revelation of himself and he's never ashamed of anything about himself or anything that he reveals about himself. But another question that we have to address is what was so wrong with David asking Job to take a census in the first place? It's an appropriate question because in other places in the Bible like Numbers chapter 1 God actually commands that a census be taken So it's not the census itself that is sinful, but something about either how the census was taken or David's motivation for taking it. Well, it's hard to imagine that there could be something so wrong about how the census was taken that it brought the death of 70,000 soldiers in a plague. Besides that, when David orders Joab to take the census, Joab doesn't say anything about the methodology being wrong. He doesn't like the census. It's something about the census that's going on. So a much better explanation, one that's traditionally offered, as to what on earth was wrong with this census, is there was something wrong with David's heart when he commands it to be taken. Whatever was wrong, it's clear that David wants this census taken badly, because he overrides Joab's objection, and it says the commanders of the army. And he had nine months and 20 days to change his mind, because that's how long it took to cover all this land that David had conquered. So he wants this, he's intent on this. And you'll notice it's not until after the final count is taken that David realizes, oops, I did something wrong. We know what he did wrong. We think from chapter 9. Namely, what David wanted, because it says there were X number of valiant men, fighting men. He wanted to know how many mu- how men he could muster in his army. And we know that that's sinful from what we saw last week about how God fights his wars. Last week we saw that the Bible teaches that when his people engage in a battle and they emerge victorious, it's because it was the Lord's battle, right? And he was fighting it through them. Think about it. If God is the one fighting through you, of what relevance is the number of fighting men you have, right? In the story of Gideon, which David doubtless knew, it only happened 150 years before this, God reduces his army from 32,000 men down to 300 men to fight against a force of 135,000 Midianites. And you know how the story ended. Gideon slaughters them with 300 men. Clearly, David knew God plus one is a majority, as Luther said. That means that David's desire to know the number of potential military recruits that he could count on is an expression of profound unbelief in God. Underneath his desire to know the size of God's army is a distrust of the Lord because it indicates that his trust is in the size of his army. And that diminishes God. God won't stand for that. And that's David's sin. That's worthy of a plague because he's diminishing God over a nine and a half month period before all of nation of Israel. The second major section is in Verses 10 to 18, and that is God's judgment on sin. These next two points, by the way, are much shorter than the first one. After David had sent Joab and his military commanders to spread throughout all of the territory that he'd commanded, that's why he goes into all of those places. That's all the territory that David had taken. Unlike his sin with Bathsheba, David doesn't need a prophet to come in and open his eyes to his sin. It takes nine and a half months, but he finally does come to it on his own. And so he says in verse 10, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So David rightly sees he's done a great sin. He confesses it as doing something very foolish, and it's his iniquity. So he has three confessions in that verse. He says it's great, I've done foolishly, and it's an iniquity. This is a part of what the scripture reveals about why David was a great man. And that is, though he's a sinner, and he sinned grievously at times, he always comes back, and he comes back hard to God. See, unlike Saul, David is heartbroken over his sin, and he genuinely repents of it, and he returns to an intimate relationship with God. That gives us hope, it's also a wonderful example for us. Do we experience heartbreak over our sin? Not because we made a mistake or because we failed or someone found out about it and we were embarrassed by it. Do we experience heartbreak over our sin because it breaks the heart of God? And do we humbly confess and repent of it? That's the Christian way to relate to sin. David doesn't get an instant response to his request. But the prophet Gad, who is basically his private chaplain for all of his reign, comes to him and gives David God's response for his prayer of confession. And in his response, God does not refuse to forgive David. On an individual basis, he treats it as a national sin. Because remember, his response is not ultimately directed toward David, but Israel. You have to remember that in the story, God is ultimately acting out his judgment on Israel for their sin the sin that originally brought God's anger and caused him to incite David to take his senses. God presents David with these three choices in verse 13. Three years of famine, three months of war against the enemies of Israel, and or three days of pestilence on the people of Israel. David says in verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Now, all three of those consequences would have been expressions of God's judgment, and all of them would have been under his sovereign control, but David opts for the option where only God is involved, pestilence. David knows God's mercy very well, and so in his decision, he throws himself and his nation down at the feet of God, asking for mercy. And the Lord reveals that God uses, as his agent of judgment, the angel of the Lord. As we saw in our doctrinal Sunday school class a few weeks ago, the angel of the Lord is repeatedly spoken of as God in the Old Testament. Many believe this is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Verse 16 says, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So David visually sees the angel of the Lord striking his people with the sword of God's judgment and he's horrified. First Chronicles gives an even more graphic or dramatic picture. The angel is pictured as standing between heaven and earth and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, we see David's soft heart here toward God because he asks God, punish me rather than these sheep See, David, of course, we know, was a shepherd in his youth, and he brings that shepherd's heart to the throne with him. He knew that a good shepherd, whether a king or in our day, a pastor or elder, is one who is committed to laying down his life for the sheep that God has given him responsibility over. And God vindicates David's trust in his mercy by telling the angel, don't destroy Jerusalem, withdraw your hand. The last and third section of the story in verse Begins in verse 18, and we could call it God's redemption of Israel. When David cries out to God to kill him instead of the people, God sends his prophet, Gad, to tell David to raise an altar on the threshing floor of Arana. A threshing floor is where farmers would separate the chaff, little hull over the the grain of wheat, by scraping that hull off, and then they would throw the wheat and the chaff up in the air, and on a windy day, the wind would take the chaff away. Low tech, but very effective. And that's what was, do, what was done here. Threshing floors were typically located at the top of a hill where it was often windy. Arana offers to pay for the animal sacrificed himself, as well as the wood required to make the sacrifice to burn it up. And David refuses in verse 24 No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David knew that unless a sacrifice to the Lord involves some personal commitment by the worshiper, there was no heart involvement. It was just an empty ritual. It was just a box to check off. So David pays for and then he builds the altar and offers offerings and peace offerings to God, which we see David do this a few times during his reign, and that is he behaves like a priest well, priests were the only ones who were supposed to be doing this. And yet, as we've seen before in First and 2 Samuel, David makes offerings at times. So he acts like a priest at times. And this is one of the ways that he was unique as one of the kings of Israel. And it's one of the reasons why Jesus was the son of David, because he fulfilled this threefold office of prophet, which David was as a psalmist, priest, and king. Let's close by thinking about one point of application from this story, and that is God is and always has been a God who delights in redeeming his people from their sin. The reason we can say that is because of all the things in this story, the thing that says that most clearly is the location of the threshing floor, which is strange. But in this story, the location of this sacrifice to appease God's wrath for the sins of his people, again, may not seem very important, but it's very significant because this location represents God's ongoing desire to redeem his people from their sin. This location near Jerusalem where the angel was stopped from his judgment was by no means chosen randomly by God. This was a very significant location in Jewish history because according to 1 Chronicles 22, which is the chronicler's account of this, same event, after David's burnt offering, he says in verse 1, here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is where they build the temple, right there. So David's offering for sin here in this story, look forward to all of those sacrifices in that very place that would be made on the altar of God in the temple of God for the sins of God's people. But this location was not only significant for God's redemption of Israel's sin in the future temple, this place was also an important part of the story of God's previous redemptive work for Israel, we know this because in 2 Chronicles 3.1, we read of the building of the temple. And what does it say? Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So this place was Orana or Ornan. They're the same guy. Sold David this threshing floor, also called Mount Moriah, Do you remember Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah is the place where Abraham, in obedience to God's command, a thousand years earlier, offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice that was interrupted by God at the last minute in order to spare Isaac. Listen to what Ron Youngblood does to connect these dots together. He says, at the same site where Abraham once held a knife over his son David sees the angel of the Lord with a sword ready to plunge into Jerusalem. In both cases, death is averted by sacrifice. The temple is established there as a place where God will perpetually be reminded that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Death for Isaac and for David's Jerusalem was averted because the sword of divine justice would ultimately find its mark in the Son of God. Small wonder, then, that the New Testament should begin with a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Bible is one book. It is the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, and there are these threads that run all the way through it, and this is one of them. This story is tragic in in the sense that 70,000 men have to taste the judgment of God's judgment on sin. And yet we see this redemptive thread that runs through God's sparing of Isaac to this moment of God's sparing of Jerusalem, both by a sacrifice on an altar. And we know from our New Testament vantage point that the reason God could permanently spare those people is because he had already conceived in eternity past of how to finally and completely satisfy his wrath for the sin of his people. He would sacrifice his own son, Jesus, as the Lamb of God on the altar of the cross. And not coincidentally, the cross is the very best example of God's redemptive relationship to evil that we saw earlier. You thought I was done with that, right? We gotta go to the coup de grace. (laughs) Peter's preaching at Pentecost about the cross of Christ and he says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If you struggled in our first point about the idea that God sees to it that sin happens without him actually sinning, the cross is the greatest example of sin in human history because this is the only act of evil ever committed against a purely innocent man who did not deserve it. Everybody else is full of sin, and they deserve whatever they get. Jesus did not deserve it. This ultimate act of evil, and we have to see it that way, though performed by the hands of sinful men, was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Do you see the parallels? The men killed Jesus, but God was behind it. Satan incited David, but God was behind it. We may struggle at points over God's relationship to evil, but ultimately Romans 8.28 reminds us God purposes all evil, all things including all evil for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And the ultimate expression of good for us is the cross of Christ. Ultimately, believers should praise God for the fact that God was willing to redemptively interact with evil, the evil that put His Son on the cross, because without the cross we'd all be perishing in our sin. If you're here today and you've not received Christ by faith, to receive the punishment that your sins deserve, receive Christ today, so that you won't have to suffer God's eternal anger and punishment for your sin as you pay for your evil. May God give us the grace to trust God and to live in praise and worship to our holy and merciful God for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult truths. But we're so grateful that you reveal these things about yourself that we don't have to guess. God, we're grateful that you are totally sovereign which means you have to have a relationship with evil because this planet is chock full of it and we're grateful that you can do that without sinning god help us to receive that help us to believe that and god help us to give thanks for the cross help us to give thanks for this plan of redemption that you've had before the creation of the world that started in Genesis 3, where you predicted that the serpent's head would be crushed by a wounded heel. And then moving on throughout the Old Testament, through the temple, through the prophets, through the priests, through the kings, we see this thread continuing on, this redemptive thread until finally we see it in Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you for the the glorious truths of Scripture. God, we pray that you would use them not just to fill our head with facts, but that we might be conformed to the image of Christ as we think, as we praise you, as we reflect, as we chew up your word. God, we pray that you do that today for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.